This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Deadly Faith Podcast. Hey, heathens, I'm Lacey. And I'm Lola. And if you're deconstructing, deconstructed, deconverted, dealing with religious trauma, or love true crime, hell, maybe it's all of the above, then you need to subscribe to Deadly Faith. On this podcast, we explore the world where religion and crime collide. Maybe someone takes their religious beliefs a tad too far. Maybe someone is hiding their evil behind their man or woman of God persona. Maybe they started a cult, committed murder, or even believe that they are the second coming of Jesus Christ himself. Now, this isn't a world full of sunshine and rainbows, but it's a world that needs to be explored. So get ready for some deep dives, hard truths, and even some comedic relief as we tell these heartbreaking true crime stories. Hi, I'm Steve Hackman, pastor and author, adventurer and pilgrim of the 500-mile Camino de Santiago in Spain and 1,100-mile Via Frangigena across Europe. And the best part of waking up is listening to Keith over a second cup. Hey everyone, welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and I am joined today by a very special guest and a good friend of mine, Seth Showalter. Um, Seth is a compassionate therapist in Columbia, Missouri, with a personal understanding of the transformative power of therapy. He's committed to providing a safe and accepting space for individuals seeking support and guidance. And Seth is also the author of the brand new book, um, Finally Free, coming from Choir Publishing this month. And uh, Seth, Welcome to Second Cup with Keith. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you yeah. for having me. This is great. So um, give us a little bit of background, people that don't know anything about you and you know a little bit about your background. And yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I grew up in a small town in Northwest Missouri, and um, I am a therapist. But the reason I became a therapist was because of the trauma that I went through uh, given conversion therapy. And that's actually why I have written a book about that experience. And uh, Choir Publishing was so incredibly kind to me and actually was willing to publish my book. Um, but through my book, I actually recount my journey, um, including actual journal excerpts of my story through conversion therapy and what that was like. And so... Um, after that entire encounter and what that did to me psychologically, I decided to become a therapist so that I could help others um, deal with the aftermath of religious trauma and anxiety and depression that often comes as a result of things like that. Yeah, and that's that's amazing. And I just want to say too, it's a really great book. So and um, and it you know I've known you for a while, and when I heard you were doing the book, I was like, oh. I got to take a look at this. So I love the fact that you, um, like, as you said, you incorporated into your book, like you said, these actual journal entries. So when you were, when you were actually going through this conversion therapy, you were journaling, uh, anyway. So is this something you journaled in general or did you just decide, did you start journaling when you began that process? So the facility actually required us to keep oh. a journal okay, and they would read it every night. So this gets complicated. <laughs> yeah. I there's a part of me that wanted to keep a detailed journal entry so that they knew what I really felt and what I really thought. Mm -hmm. So there was there was a you know, like there was a level to this to where it was like, I'm gonna write as much as I possibly can so that they really know what I think. Mm -hmm. It was a, a way of me communicating back to the staff on how I felt things were going. Mm -hmm. And 
And when I started the experience, I quickly realized that there's not very many people that go through this. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I wanted as much detail included in the journals as I possibly could include. Yeah. And so I made it lengthy. Uh, my <laughs> journal my journal was 300 pages long when it was all said and done. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was wow. intense. So I'm curious, when you began this um, process, when you... Um, I mean, is this something that you went into willingly? Were you kind of like, yeah, I, I want to go into this. This is a good thing. I want it to work. Or yes. did you go in like, sort of like, no, I, this, I, I'm resisting this. Oh, no. I am actually the one that decided that I wanted to do this. My, and I, So I want to be very clear. I was not forced into conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. I actually felt convicted uh, to go into conversion therapy due to my religious upbringing and the way I was raised. Mm -hmm. Um I believed that I was going to go to hell and I believed I had no choice. Um, I was trying to fit uh, myself like uh, fitting a, a round uh, hole into a square peg or mm -hmm. however you say a square that. peg in a round uh, hole of those. Yeah. There you go. There you go. That's how you say that. But yeah, it was like trying to, to do the impossible essentially. And it was really, really difficult. Um, and I, I was like, I don't know what else to do and I don't know where else to turn. So I went to my parents and said, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Help me. And mm -hmm. they came up with this option. Right. And how old were you? 22. Okay. Um, do you mind, can we talk a little bit about like before that? So before you got to the point that you felt like the only option is this conversion therapy solution. Um, can you tell us a little bit about just like your, you're growing up. I mean, at what point you said you grew up in a Christian home and all that, but at what point did you start uh, suspecting that you might not, uh, you might be gay, that you weren't straight? And then, you know, what, what was that like? You know, in, in yeah. that, I'm sure that was a struggle. Oh, absolutely. So I started to figure it out in high school. It wasn't until high school where I started to figure out my sexuality, but it was complicated because I started engaging in. Uh, same-sex attraction, like engaging in same-sex attraction uh, behaviors, but I didn't deem it that way. Mm -hmm. I was so indoctrinated in the Christian faith that I was like, this is just sin and it's not what I think it is. Mm -hmm. And I was playing the avoidance tactic as much as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I felt rejected in my hometown. So when it, this stuff started to happen, I felt accepted and I felt like I was finally a part of something. So it really complicated everything mm -hmm. that I was feeling. And, and as a way of coping with that, I dove headfirst into the church, thinking mm -hmm. that the church could provide me answers. And that became the very conflicted journey that started in high school and continued until I was 22 and went to this program. Mm -hmm. um, and so throughout when I, I felt so convicted in high school about these feelings that I was having, I actually admitted myself or committed myself to a, a year internship my first year out of college, I'm sorry, out of high school, um, at a mega church uh, where I worked with a youth ministry trying to earn God's favor. Yeah. I really thought that if I could dedicate myself to the Lord, that he would, that he would honor that in some way. And then he would, you know, honor that and be like, okay, I see the effort that you're doing. I see the people that you're trying to help. I'm going to respect that and make you straight. Yeah. And that's not, that's not what happened. 
Um, instead, I just dove further and further and further into what I would deem now as clinical depression and anxiety and not knowing where to turn. And so um, after that internship, I went to a major university and finished out my degree in social work. Um, throughout that experience, I started getting involved with youth minute with college ministries like Campus Crusade for Christ, for example, mm-hmm. and ministries to the church that I was attending. And these ministries were really geared towards trying to make me straight. Um, they got me involved with discipleship leaders and accountability groups and all kinds of curriculum that was geared towards making me straight, or at least helping me step away from the what they cl- what they clarified as the gay lifestyle. Hmm. Again, now I don't c- categorize it that way, but that's the Christian lingo. That's how they spoke about it, hmm. and and really, I, I went back and forth in that place of I hate myself, I love myself, I hate myself, I love myself for all throughout my college experience. Until eventually I was so down and out that I didn't know where else to turn and went to my parents and asked for help. Yeah. Yeah. And that's got to be such a painful and just anxiety riddled, you know, uh, experience just because it isn't, you know, I think, I think, I don't know, I I can relate to part of your story as a straight man. When I was Mm -hmm. in high school and college, my my temptation was uh, like girls and pornography and all that stuff. So I had guilt about that, about the desires and lust and all these kind of things. And and I and I also went through this whole thing about you know begging God to take this uh, obsession away from me. And uh, in pornography was a big thing for uh, for me in uh, in high school and college. Um, And so I struggled with that a lot. Um, But for you, this is more about your identity, right? And correct. like you said, like for you, the prayer was God make me straight. Um, and uh, so I'm just curious, did you confide in anyone about this? I mean, was there a youth leader or a counselor or a friend or a pastor or anybody, um, that you confided in about this? Multiple. So (laughs) at all stages, I was confiding in people. I mean, there was, um, in college, I actually went back to my hometown and confided in uh, my high school mentor because I had a spiritual mentor growing up and I confided in him. And, and literally he told me pretty, pretty straightforward, Seth, you need to run. Uh, this is a sin that's, that once you go down this path, there is no going back and mm. you need to run now. Mm. And so uh, I was told to do that uh, by my high school mentor um, then when I was in the youth ministry, when I was in the youth ministry, uh, at the mega church, I actually confided in that pastor who literally had very little answers for me of where to turn or what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually ended up confessing to one of the worship leaders who also turned out to be gay. Um, <laughs> shocker. No one's surprised, right? Right. right. Uh, so no big deal there. Um, but that became like a, we ended up growing really close throughout that experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in college, I was confiding in, in all of these, these leaders uh, through discipleship and through accountability groups and through all of these things uh, to try to help me. And really, I just kept getting the cold shoulder in that there is something wrong with you and mm-hmm. you need God's help and you need God's intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So there was no one during that time uh, leading up to the conversion therapy, no one that you confided in that told you, hey, Seth, you're okay. It's all right. God loves you. You you can be who you are. Yeah. Very, very little. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only people that I really received that from were other individuals who identified as gay, Mm -hmm. but they kept me at an arm's length because they saw that self-hatred within me and it scared them. They didn't want to get anywhere close to me because I was a sign or an indication of what they were, you know, of what they were trying to avoid. And they didn't want to be around someone who was going through what I was going through. And they were like, we don't want to be around that type of internal homophobia. And so I was kind of put at an arm's length from the very community at which I, that I needed and, and wanted to be a part of. Yeah. No, so you said something there, which I think is interesting, which is the internal homophobia, right? This is kind of the the indoctrination uh, that we get from the evangelical Christian side of things, right? The only way, it seems anyway, at least in my experience, the only way to think of this is that it's a sin and uh, it's a sin issue and you have to repent and you have to pray, literally pray the gay away. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's the, it's always approached from that perspective, and so it does create, like you said, this internal homophobia. You are gay, but you're terrified of of being gay, and you and you don't. We really want to connect with other gay people because that's, you know, it's like going to the sinners club or something. Um, they're just going to encourage you more of that, right? So yeah, right. Talk about that. I mean, what's what is that like? I mean, that seems like it's a very self defeating thing, right? Internal homophobia? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You literally are going against the very nature of who you are as a person. Yeah. Um, it, it leads you to to hate yourself um, and, and really wish that you were someone else and wish that you were someone different in so many different ways. It's not just um, who you're attracted to, but who you are as a person. Um, it goes to the very root of who we are as people. And that internal homophobia, um, it, it, it gets so complicated because it's so rooted in theology. Mm-hmm. It's so rooted in uh, maybe what your family believes or what you're receiving from society or from pressures around you. So it's, it's not only coming from within yourself, but then it's backed up by everywhere you look. Yeah. So it's like you feel... Like you yourself are the problem and that there is something deeply, deeply wrong with who you are as the, as a person. Yeah. And, um, it, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I can imagine. So you, you had reached a point then, like you said, around 22, you had, uh, tried every available avenue that you knew to try. You had confided in all these different people and gotten, bad advice, if, if anything, or if, if any. Um, so you go to your parents, you tell them what's going on and they suggest this conversion therapy. You're like, yes, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's do this thing. Um, what was that like? Well, I need to provide some caveats here okay? because, um, to, to put this bluntly, it wasn't just conversion therapy. Okay. There was also substance use going on as a way of coping with my internal homophobia Mm -hmm. and the pressures that I was experiencing from the church. 
I started to cope with my with my shame and with my guilt mm-hmm. through feeling um through nursing those wounds with with drugs and alcohol. It mm-hmm. was the only way that I felt that I I could ease that pain. And so my life truly started to go off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um and was not I was not living a healthy lifestyle. And so my parents saw that and out of love and compassion for me, they wanted to get me help. I am the one that advocated for conversion therapy. They were not. They yep. were the ones that were like, hey, we want to help you um, with the substance use because your life is out of control. Yep. And I was like, yeah, but I also don't want to go to hell. So <laughs> is it like, is it possible that we could like maybe, you know, two birds with one stone here? Yeah. And then they agreed to find a program that specialized in both. Wow. Well, um, I can't imagine, Seth. I feel, I mean, my heart goes out to you, uh, the 22-year-old you, because I feel like, you know, I mean, it makes total sense. I have have friends who have, you know, um, like, I know as you were talking about that, I was flashing back to some friends of mine who um, wrestled with some like mental illness issues. And that's exactly what they did. The way they were, the way they coped with it was uh, substance abuse. And it's just sort of yeah. like, you know, the pressure gets so great. You're not finding relief anywhere else. Uh, no one else is able to help you with these problems. And so you kind of find ways to self-medicate, right. As a way of coping yeah. with that, to kind of take away the pressure, the pain, the fear, the anxiety, the the guilt and all that kind of stuff. And so it makes total sense. Um, but I, I know a lot of people listening can probably relate to what you're talking about um, because yeah. it is, it's a common thing. And so you find yourself in this place of, you know, you, you, your parents are worried about your, your physical uh, health and you're worried about your spiritual health. And really it seems like everything has reached this point um, where there's no other way out. So when you go into the conversion therapy, yeah. And, and the uh, substance abuse, um, therapy. What, what was that like? I mean, was it okay in the beginning? And can you give us maybe a little bit about like, how did, what was their approach to the problem other than making you journal? What else were you involved in? What are the other things that they say? Like, okay, here's the program. Here's what we're going to put you into. And here's what's going to solve your problem. So it's complicated because they didn't focus as much on conversion therapy as I was expecting that they would. Okay. Um, what they really focused on was the substance use, but then what they did is they hyper-spiritualized everything. So they brought in these spiritual gurus and like this lady by the name of Jackie, which if you which if you purchase Finally Free, I would love to hear your opinions on Jackie. Uh, I truly would. Yeah. I would love to know what you think. But she came in and did like these spiritual like taking you back to the memory and then having you picture Jesus in the moment. Like she was all about having you like heal these wounds from your past. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, is that their premise for homosexuality was that it was an over enmeshed mother and emotionally distant father. Mm -hmm. And they used a book by Exodus international at that time, um, entitled stepping out of homosexuality. And so they had me working through a workbook, but in addition to that, they had me doing all of the regular spiritual substance use stuff that they were doing with all of the other residents, because I was the only one there 
that was receiving conversion therapy. Uh Everyone else in the program was receiving substance use treatment. Mm -hmm. So I was a special case. Okay. So if I was going to receive any type of conversion therapy focused treatment, it had to be outside of the confines of what was everyone else was receiving. So like I, I had to have special meetings with people. People had to come into the facility and provide special types of treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point, they even had me see a therapist, like an actual, like an actual, oh, therapist. a real therapist, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I actually questioned her, like some of the things that she did, and you'll read that in the book. And I'm like, I don't know, were you, were you really legit? <laughs> I, I'm a therapist now, and I question some uh-huh. of the things, and I'm like, I. Mm-hmm. I'm not for sure about this, uh, but they actually did. They did have me see. Um, actually, it was a sexual assault therapist because mm-hmm. they wanted me to go back and see if I had actually been mm-hmm. through any form of of sexual assault, trying to find the source yeah. of my homosexuality. Um, but Catherine, the CEO of the facility, did most of the conversion therapy treatment. And what she would do is she'd have me come in. We'd work through this workbook called "Stepping Out of Homosexuality." And her whole, her whole idea was like analyzing the sights, smells, and places of the, of the um, gay community and then desensitizing me to them as much as possible okay. through the power of prayer. So it was all about pray, 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 pray the gay away. Yeah. That uh, was their entire premise. So desensitizing you to the sights, sounds, and smells of the gay experience. Like, okay, Correct. that sounds really odd. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I just made me think like, are they like trying to get you not to listen to certain songs or? I oh, mean, yeah. Yeah, really? Okay. Yeah. No, like really. Yeah. No, like really. Like it was, it was social media. It was music. It was movies. It was uh, bars. It was people I hung out with. It mm-hmm. was Everything that's involved in the gay community, mm. they wanted to desensitize me from it and then try to create distance between me and, and that portion of that of that community. Right. So it's raining men, YMCA, like <laughs> it's Correct. just that's so crazy. So this Exodus thing too, um, I have to say, like I have a little bit of a connection. Now, I don't I think it was more with uh, at the time, like in the nineties, I was part of the vineyard church uh not well the vineyard church movement but i worked for vineyard music group and in anaheim there that's kind of the home base for vineyard churches um it's where they had um so was it streams in the desert which was like the vineyard version of uh conversion therapy and stuff like that so i know they used a lot of exodus stuff so that's the first time i'd even heard about that i i even came mm-hmm. across that there was some kind of christian ministry specifically focused on helping convert people to not be gay and of yeah. course, the friends that I that I still have who went through that um, surprise, they're still gay, and yeah, <laughs> they they yeah. finally figured out that yeah, I, this is just who I am, and none of that stuff worked. Correct. Yeah, and I would like to note so a couple things I want to just provide here that Exodus International is actually debunked now; it's mm-hmm. no longer in practice, mm-hmm. and conversion therapy is actually deemed as illegal in the United States. Uh, However, just because it's deemed illegal does not mean that this is not still happening. Right. And if you don't believe me, please jump on TikTok, get on any uh, debate stage and watch the conversations that are happening. Mm-hmm. People still very, very much believe that this is wrong and that it's a sin and that people are going to hell. Oh, yeah. 
Um, it, it very much is still a, a thing that's happening in our society today, even though it's deemed as illegal. Um, so it's still very present. And I would also like to know, I'm not for sure which one it is, but one of the leading, and I think it might be Exodus, but one of the leading, um, you know, pray the gay away movements, uh, leaders is now gay and living in California with his husband. So, you know what I'm saying? Like this, it didn't have validity. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can't remember the name of it and maybe it was called pray the gay away, but there was a documentary on Netflix that, um, I remember Yvette Cantu Schneider was one of the people that was part of that movement that's interviewed in the documentary who, you know, like also the guy, maybe we're thinking of the same guy. He was also like their big spokesman. He went on like all the major talk shows and uh, he was their poster boy for like, look at me, I'm cured. I was, I used to be gay and now I'm married and I have kids and I'm straight and everything's great and God will change you. And, um, and for a couple of years, I mean, he was, you know, uh, he was held up as like, see, I did it. You can do it too. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then in the documentary, pretty much all the leaders of that movement, um, came back and said, yeah, uh, that didn't work actually. And I was in denial and I was pretending and got swept up in the, um, in the movement. Right. So once you kind of get put on that pedestal, you're speaking at these big conferences and they were doing these huge conferences every year, you know, with thousands of people coming. And of course, you know, it, all of those people now are saying it, that it didn't work um, and it doesn't work. I mean, that's part of the thing is like, I guess, I guess you could maybe define work. Um, I'm sure there are some people um, who have gone through it and kind of the indoctrination that you go through because they want it to work so bad. Right. Because they're like, I, I can't be gay. I, I have to be straight. I don't want to go to hell. Um, that at least on some level, they convince themselves um, that they're straight, even if they're not. I'm sure for some people, maybe they can maintain that for, you know, who knows, maybe they can't. But I just know a, a lot of people try and try and try and eventually just have to say it doesn't work. Right. Because it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much proven. And for those who, who really say that it does, I believe that they're in a, in a position of denial. Yeah. Like really when it, when it boils down to it, um, we can hope and uh, we can hope it as much as we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make a difference at the end of the day. We all, we like what we like and we can't change that. Right. Um, and we need to learn to accept it. And that's really what I'm hoping that my book really portrays. I, I don't leave anything out. Um, I really put my heart and my soul into it and I let you see the internal fight uh, within me. Um, because even throughout all throughout my book, I, I'm in there like, no, 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 no. I want to be straight. And then I'm like, oh no, no, no. I want to be gay. Um, (laughs) but you know, like it's, it's, you get to see the internal turmoil, Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the entire book. Um, Mm -hmm. because this stuff doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And again, going back to your book, I I think that's what's so helpful with the book. And that's the gift that you did journal so much through the experience. Um, because the 22 year old, you wants it to work, sort of needs it to work, um, is journaling through the experiences and, um, and like, so each chapter you'll, you'll begin with one of those journal, journal entries and then have a reflection now, now that you've come yeah. through it and said, this was bullshit to say, Hey, um, let me talk back to myself and say, you know, uh, here's what's real. I know, here's, I know what you're really thinking. I know what you're really feeling. 
And I think it allows you also for the reader, if they're also going through the same kind of struggles, to find themselves maybe even in both voices uh, at any given time, right? They may, they may be going, right. yeah, I feel the way you felt at 22, but at the same time, I can see something I couldn't see that you're talking about now uh, that you've gone through it. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the one of the goals that I had was not just to make this read um, well for the gay community, but also for those who are outside mm-hmm. of the gay community. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want the church specifically, I want Christians to be able to understand uh, what this is like for someone who's actively trying to change their sexuality. I want you to actually be able to see what's happening to the, to the mind and, and the psyche um, as someone starts to contemplate these things. Mm-hmm. And so um, the book is actually written to multiple audiences uh, and it's done purposely because I want you to be able to see that thread uh, throughout the text and be able to relate. And, and really what I'm hoping is that it can speak to any marginalized group within our society today, mm-hmm. not just the LGBTQIA community, because so many marginalized groups in our society also feel this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a gift. Uh, and I'm very grateful that you wrote this book, Seth, and very proud that Choir is, uh, is able to publish it and, and make it available. Because I think it's exactly right. I think this book is... It's speaking to parents, like if you are a parent of mm-hmm. someone, of a, of a child who's struggling with this, who is gay and who who feels this, you know, um, condemnation, uh, this internal homophobia, uh, or or if you feel like you're being told by, by your pastor or whatever, like you need to take your kid into some kind of conversion therapy, this book is great because it'll it'll give you a window into what that is like and and that it doesn't work and what it does to your kids and what your kids are feeling and going through. I think it's also a beautiful book for a, a person themselves who are going through it the way you did. You know, I think it's a, it's a wonderful guide and a window into that experience and hopefully they can learn um, from your experiences and, and maybe find themselves in your story and find some healing there as mm-hmm. well. And I do hope you're mm-hmm. right. I think it would be a beautiful thing um, if churches, if youth pastors, if pastors, um, if quote unquote, Christian therapists <laughs> or counselors or whoever, you know, um, who are dealing with this, right. And are really only dealing with it the ways they've been told that it's a sin and we need to pray the gay away. And when, you know, it's treated as a spiritual thing, cast the demons of homosexuality out of your kids or whatever, um, for them to read it, you know, hopefully more from a compassionate side and see that this, um, this approach really does more damage than good. And hopefully points them in a better direction, right? Of some of some better ways to respond than the ways they're currently responding. Right. And it's to challenge some of those mindsets and allow us to look outside of what we deem and what we perceive to be the truth mm-hmm. and actually understand the impact of what our belief systems are actually doing um, and how that the rhetoric of our belief system um, what that actually uh, results in and the, um, how do I want to word this, but like the impact that has on the ground floor, mm-hmm. because I don't think a lot of people think about that because the, when this, this has a real life uh, yeah. <laughs> weight to it yes. um, when people take these things into, into to heart. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So as you were going through um, this, the, the dual therapies um, at at this facility, um, I'm assuming the, at least the, the, the drug treatment part of it worked, uh, I hope. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yes, it did. So it wasn't complete loss, right? That's good. No. Okay. That's, there was some good. That was helpful. Um, well, at, so I'm just curious, I don't want to, you know, to give too much away about the book, but, um, was there a point as you were going through sort of the, the conversion side of the therapy that you reached a point of feeling like, you know, realization of like, oh, this isn't going to work either. So it's a constant back and forth, uh-huh. like a constant back. Like if you read my book, you will eventually want to throw it across the room. <laughs> I am going to give you a pre-warning. Okay. There's going to be moments you're going to want to throw my book. And I'm sorry about that, but it's, you just have to prepare yourself for it. It's part of it. Yeah. But throughout the conversion experience, I literally was back and forth so much mm-hmm. that it, it changed from day to day. And so I don't know if there was ever a, really a point that it was like, this is where I stand and this is where I'm going to stay. Mm-hmm. It, it's not until after I left the program that I eventually came to some very firm, some very firm ground and was like, this is where I'm, this is what I actually believe in. This is what I'm going to hold to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Um, so, um, well, let me, let me shift gears a little bit here. I'm just curious. So currently now you are a therapist. And yes. you mentioned at the beginning that that's part of the reasons why you wanted to become a therapist was, you know, because of what you had gone through. Um, I'm just curious when, was there a point in this process? I mean, did you, did you know early on that you wanted to move in this direction as a, a career path, or is this something that didn't become clear until you had, um, gone through this experience? Um, so I'd always known that I wanted to be a helper. Um, and I had already graduated with my undergrad in social work. So I already had a social work degree. Mm-hmm. So I already knew that I was going to be working with people. The thing about social work, though, is that it's so open, mm-hmm. right? I can do a hundred different things, including therapy. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know until much later that I really wanted to be a therapist. In fact, because of this experience, even after I got my graduate degree, I spent many years doing things outside of the therapy world because I didn't feel like I was competent enough to be a therapist Mm. because of this experience. I felt like this experience actually uh, prevented me from being um, what I needed to be in order to help people. It's taken me years and actual processing through my own experience to get to the, to the level to where it was like, nope, I, I'm actually in a place where I can do this. Mm-hmm. So I've worked as a social worker, you know, in crisis services. I've worked for a crisis line. I've worked for mm-hmm. uh, community mental health. I've worked for insurance companies. I've worked for a software company. I've done all kinds of different things mm-hmm. um, before I eventually found myself in the therapy realm. And it, it really took a lot of processing uh, to get there. Yeah. And writing this book was part of that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so I'm curious uh, now that you are uh, now you are a therapist, and, and have you had an opportunity to run across any young uh, young people who are uh, kind of exactly where you were? I mean, have you 
had patients that were like, oh, I'm, I'm now on the other side of the desk and I'm now able to speak to someone who was just like me when I was at that age. Yes. Yes, I have. Um, I've also um, worked with individuals who are in that same place, but at very different age ranges. Mm -hmm. uh, so, which is very interesting as well. So um, again, looking at the, the diversity of clientele, uh, these issues affect people at all different stages of life. It's not just ha happening at a young age um, or in your 20s. Mm -hmm. um, this can happen at any point in the life cycle um, when, when someone finally comes to terms with who they are as a person. And, and that can happen in your 50s or 60s. Like it can happen at any point. And so the answer to that question is yes, mm -hmm. uh, but it might not look exactly the way that it did for me yeah. because everyone is unique. Yeah, exactly. Do you have um, any advice? Uh, I, I just can envision that there are people listening who are, uh, who are parents of children who are, who have either come out as gay or maybe they suspect that their, their child might be gay. Um, and, and they also are facing, um, kind of that condemnation from the church or their Christian friends, like how is that, what is the best way to respond? And do you have any advice for parents, um, you know, who, who are in that situation? Well, I think the first thing to do is validate, 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 validate. Um, so I think being able to understand that your child doesn't really understand everything that's going on first and foremost um, and so just validating where they are and showing them grace mm -hmm. um, and space to figure these things out, I think is really, really important because we all deserve that time and that space. So that's number one is what I'd advocate for. And then the second thing that I think is really important is to be um, knowledgeable about how your belief system and your prejudice can actually impact and seep into um, the way that you communicate and the way in which case you educate. Um, because that actually holds a really um, serious uh, weight uh, for people that are coming to terms with their identity. Mm -hmm. um, what I would like to call microaggressions. Mm -hmm. We might not even really realize that they're happening or that we're communicating them, yeah. but they very much can. And so we want to we want to be very knowledgeable about how we talk about certain types of issues around the LGBTQIA community mm -hmm. um, and showing that type of of grace and mercy, regardless of where that individual, your child uh, is or, or says that they are, mm -hmm. because you just don't know. Yeah. And right. so you want to show them that space. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking in terms of um, when you said microaggressions and things that people might not be aware that can be received as aggression. Uh, and they could be something, and I'm sure you have other, maybe even better examples, but what pops into my mind is just um, a very normal thing. If like you're a parent or a grandparent, you know, to constantly ask your, your child or your grandchild, who's like, you know, maybe in their teens or twenties, when are you going to get married? Um, what, you know, have you thought about names for your children? You know, I'll, when you, when am I going to get a grandkid? Right. Um, those seem like very normal questions, very, very loving and affirming questions, normal questions that a, a parent or a grandparent would, would make towards their child or grandchild. 
but that can be received right as um, an unintentional condemnation of like, how do I respond to that if I'm gay? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's this pressure that's automatically put onto that person yeah. that they need to be someone that they're not mm -hmm. and that they need to fit some type of standard. And that can be extremely limiting and um, shameful yeah. uh, for that individual. Yeah. It's setting that expectation on them. That's right. Um, I also came across um, something I was, it was a documentary I was watching um, on this subject. And it was talking about specifically about the way the church, um, you know, it was a, something about, it was a, based on a statistic about how if a teen, um, you know, comes out, they're more likely to have thoughts of uh, suicide or self-harm yes. if they are in a, if they're raised in a, in a Christian environment or, you know, a faith environment. And Correct. so that's a startling statistic. I mean, I'm not shocked, but I mean, you know, the, the studies have been done. It's more, you're, you know, that's just the truth. Um, that that's, that's Correct. kind of a built in, uh, sad thing about it. But then the, the at the same time, the, the uh, documentary mentioned, that it seems that if there's if that child if that teen um, has even one person who affirms them who stands by them who encourages them a friend a mentor um, that that could be the difference that could make the difference in whether mm -hmm. or not they go through with something and I'm just can you talk a little bit about that um, I guess as a, as yeah. someone who went through it but also as you know as a therapist so first and foremost I want to note this that we know from research and from statistics that, uh, well, there's several things I want to mention here, but from research and statistics, we know that the LGBTQIA community is a way higher risk of suicidal, suicidality and self-harm mm. than the heterosexual population. Um, it just because of societal standards, because of expectations of the family, because of religion, because of, I mean, A, B, C, D, F, G. I mean, the the, the reasons are many. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, we also want to look at um, not only the higher rates, but we also want to understand that within these religious families, um, having that support system is huge. In fact, from research, we know that having a support system, even just one person, is the number one factor um, against suicide and mental health problems. Mm -hmm. um, the support system is vitally important. It's the number one protective factor. That's the word I was looking for. The number one protective factor against um, mental health issues and suicidality support system is huge. It's everything. Mm -hmm. And so being able to connect and feel affirmed makes that person feel not so alone. In fact, not having someone that you can reach out to and feel affirmed by makes you feel very isolated and alone. And when you feel isolated and alone, your mind begins to play tricks on you. Um, you begin to believe lies that are not necessarily true. In fact, you begin to believe that people are really out to get you and that they're not there for your best interest. Now, they might be holding beliefs that are not there for your best interest, but you begin to believe that they really have like a vendetta against you. Mm -hmm. When that may not be the truth, it could just be their belief system. But that's partly what my book wants to highlight here mm -hmm. is that 
the way in which case we believe and the way in which we portray those beliefs has a real life impact. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It really does. Um, so going back to your experience and, and things in the book, um, when you came out of that you know, experience, uh, that, that you came out of the treatment program and, and the therapy, um, so tell me, what was that like? I mean, did, did you come out of that experience initially feeling like it had worked? Um, or did you come out of it feeling like you didn't know? And I guess more importantly, I think the most important thing would be for you, what did work? What was it that you finally discovered that made it like, okay, it's not this, it's not that, it's not pray the gay away, it's not conversion therapy, uh, it's not, you know, creating some kind of an aversion to certain songs and whatever. Um, what was it for you that finally was sort of the path, um, you know, out to healing and sanity and, and, and uh, you know, enjoying being who you are? Well, I'm going to provide a spoiler alert to the book. I'm going to provide a little nugget. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, when I left the facility, the only way that they would allow me to leave is if I committed myself to five years of celibacy. Mm. <laughs> okay. 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 So that was a commitment I made. Okay. Uh, to to NH, I made that commitment to them. And obviously, that did not happen. Uh, now, I, I left believing that I could do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I very much was committed to, to that premise. And in fact, I went directly into my graduate program when I left the program and actually did my capstone research project on on like conversion therapy. Wow. Like I wanted to prove that it could be, that it works, that it could be effective, yeah. that it works. And like the, <laughs> this is, this is a higher level of like higher level institution. You know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to get that past the IRB was so difficult, by the way, uh -huh. you know, they were not very pleased with me. And in fact, I eventually had to change the research study altogether to be like, here's just a sample population of the LGBTQ community. And here are some characteristics uh -huh. with like themes uh -huh. because like I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to, like, I really wanted to believe that this could work mm -hmm. and, and it just, it, it, it clearly is not the case. Um, and so my path towards acceptance took a long time. In fact, I, I pretty much went right back to where I was. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I went through a string of really struggling in employment mm -hmm. um, because I went to this stage of really hating myself yeah. because at that point it wasn't just I'm gay and I'm and I'm failing, but it was like, I'm gay, I've tried to change and I'm failed and I can't succeed and I'm going to hell. Like it was, mm -hmm. it was things compounding on top of mm -hmm. each other. And so that level of self-hatred and internal homophobia became so strong and so overwhelming that I eventually got to a point to where I had to eventually reach out to God and say, you know what? Um, I think that God would far rather I be alive today to share my story and help others mm -hmm. than no longer be here. Yeah. And that's really what it came down to. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, well, I'm glad you I'm glad you came to that realization, and I know it's a long, hard journey. Um, 
and yeah, the the levels of from the beginning, right? You know, as a young person, that's the it starts off being condemning. It, it continues to be condemning, uh, even when people are trying to help, they're actually hurting. Um, and then those those kind of voices of condemnation kind of get internalized, as you said, and and for a lot of people, it ends badly. And uh, so I'm really glad, mm-hmm. Seth, that your story has a good ending, a happy ending. Uh, not that it's over; it's still going. But it's a it's still there was a resolution to that struggle that was positive. And and I I'm so glad that you were able to write this book and to provide so much honesty and transparency and vulnerability, because I think that's what's necessary for any kind of growth or hope or healing for people going through something like this. And so you're being uh, willing to be that vulnerable, to tell your story, to put it out there uh, and to be as honest and vulnerable as you are in this book. Um, I just want to thank you for that. I think it's, I think it's powerful. I, there's no way I think it could not help people. Um, I know people are going to read this book at at different levels. It it is going to impact people at different, uh, different places in, um, People find themselves in different, either parents or people themselves, or maybe even people in Christian counseling. Um, I hope there's something that for everyone there to take away that's really positive. And so, yeah, thank you for writing the book. I, I can't wait for it to come out for people to to read it and to experience it. Me too. I'm excited. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm trying all the marketing. <laughs> so we're, we're doing everything we can. You are, man. I love yeah. it. I love seeing you, man. You're You're out there. Every day, letting people know about it. Every day. Yeah, it's so good. Every day. So um, let, let people know again. So tell us uh, the name of the book. And um, if people want to get in touch with you or to know more about, you know, you yeah. and what you kind of, what, what you're doing, how can they find you? How can they find the book and all that? Yeah. So the book will be, is entitled Finally Free, A Surrender to Authenticity. Um, it's being published by Choir Publishing. It will hit Amazon October 17th. 2023. And you can find out about the book. You can also find out about me and reach out to me via my website, which is sethshowalter.com. There you'll find links to all my social media pages, including uh, my Facebook, my Instagram, and my TikTok. I will note right now, if you um, ever want to see how I've marketed this book, it's quite interesting to check out my TikTok um, because I have done all kinds of really cool things on there uh, for this book and getting it out there. So um, I'd love for you guys to check that out as well. Um, But yeah, it'll hit the market on Amazon October 17th. Awesome. So great. Seth, thank you so much. Thank you again for the book. Thank you for this conversation and your willingness to tell your story. Thank you.